Good morning, church. We have, to put it lightly, been on a journey the last three weeks, right? Like we have been hitting some hard things as we talk about sin, as we talk about the spiritual forces that are opposed to us in the world, as we talk about things like trauma and wounding and how those things affect us and how we respond. And so if I were to summarize where we've been, uh, this is essentially what we've talked about the last three weeks. It's that we live in a broken and sinful world. And as a result, all of us have experienced wounding and brokenness in our own lives. And so in that, in the series Becoming Whole, we recognize that that's what we've experienced. That's the world that we live in. But here, here's the question. And this is, this is where we now turn our attention and where we're going to head is how do we begin to live a redemptive presence in the world? What does it look like for us to become whole? And as we become whole, as we become people who are restored in the image of God, who reflect his character and his glory into the world, what does this new, better way look like? Where do we start? So I want to start with a man whose uh, reputation precedes him. When Elijah walked into the room, Ahab, who's king of Israel, he goes, and here is the troubler of Israel. Right? Not, not a great reputation. Now, in this case, it might actually not be a, a bad reputation because if you know King Ahab, uh, you may be familiar with him. You're probably much more familiar with his uh, infamous wife, Jezebel. Uh, she kind of has a colloquial name that uh, we all recognize. And, and so Ahab and Jezebel, they have been wicked rulers in the life of Israel, and they have led the people of Israel away from the worship of the one true God of Israel. And they have led the people of Israel to worship Baal, a false god of the ancient Near Eastern peoples. And so when Elijah walks in the room, Ahab calls him the troubler of Israel because Elijah is a man who speaks truth. Elijah is a man who's not just going to let this slide. And so in 1 Kings chapter 18, when Elijah enters the room, uh, Ahab recognizes him and knows he's going to be in for it. And Elijah goes, here's what I want to do. I want to propose a throwdown. Here's what we're going to do. I want you and the prophets of Baal to offer a sacrifice but when you build the altar, when you put the bull on it, don't light it on fire. What you're going to do is you and your prophets of Baal, you're going to call down fire from heaven. And, and if your God answers, we know that, that Baal is a real God. And Elijah goes, and, and what I'll do is when Baal doesn't answer, I'll build my altar and I'll call on the one true God and, and he'll consume the, the sacrifice. And then we'll know that Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible is the one true God. Now, Elijah's outnumbered. He's by himself, and there's 450 prophets of Baal. Part of me goes, eh, Elijah might be okay with those odds, right? He knows that God's on his side. And so the prophets of Baal, they bring this bull in, and they slaughter it, and they put it on the altar. And, and it says at 6 o'clock in the morning, they begin calling on their God. And it says no one answered, and no one responded. Now, here's where you see that Elijah's kind of a punk, Right? I'll just read this part for us. First Kings 18, verse 27. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Right? I love how he looks at his clock. He's like, y'all have had six hours. Now I'm going to make fun of you. Right? So this is what he does. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a God. Uh, perhaps he's deep in thought. Or maybe he's busy. And by the way, there, uh, that word translated, he's busy, this is really a cultural euphemism. It really is, maybe your God is in the bathroom, right? That's like the original language. That's the sense that you get of maybe your God is relieving himself somewhere and he's too busy to respond. 
He says, or, or maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So now, he, now he's just messing with them, right? Clearly your God hasn't answered because he's not a God at all. Maybe he's sleeping or traveling or in the bathroom. So verse 28, it says, they shouted louder and they start lashing themselves with swords and spears and midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying. Nothing happened. When they give up, Elijah builds his altar and, and, and he ups the ante, right? When Elijah built his altar, he says, Here, here's what we want to do. We'll put the bowl on it. He goes, now I want you to douse this altar with water. So they douse it. He goes, eh, let's do it again. So they douse it again. He goes, eh, let's do it again. So they douse it. I mean, this thing is sopping wet. And if you're going to call down fire from heaven, a wet altar, not totally conducive to catching fire, Right. But Elijah's this confident. And so he steps back and he begins praying and God answers from heaven and it says fire descends and it consumes the bull and the altar consumes the water. And it's this great moment of, of Elijah just celebrating. Look what God has done. And the people of Israel, they start saying the Lord is God. The Lord is God. And it's this great moment of celebration. And so you would expect Elijah to just be riding high, except in first Kings chapter 19, Jezebel enters the picture and she goes, yeah, all those prophets of Baal that you defeated and had put to death. She goes, may the gods deal with me ever so severely if I don't kill you, Elijah. Now, Elijah is a man of courage and a man of wisdom and faith. And so he runs away. I mean, you just saw God call down fire from heaven and consume a sopping wet altar. And, and so Elijah now runs away. First Kings chapter 19, we pick up Elijah's story at a moment where he's defeated. 1 Kings 19, verse 9. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword, and I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi, the king over Israel. Anoint Elisha son of Shaphat from Abel Meloah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. So here, here's Elijah, right? After this great moment of victory, he's now hiding in a cave. And, and what strikes me is I think for, for some of us, Elijah's response in this moment is similar to our response to the culture around us, right? We look at where we've been the last three weeks. We talk about things like sin and the broken world that we live in and the spiritual forces that are opposed to us. And we talk about things like trauma and wounding. And in the midst of all this brokenness, we look at a culture that by and large is, continues to reject God in more and more blatant ways. And for some of us, like Elijah, we go, I just want to hide in a cave. God, I'm tired. It feels like we're always being defeated. Can I, can I just not try to be bold and live? Can I just hide in the cave? 
And, and so here's Elijah in this moment of defeat. And, and notice God twice asked him, Elijah, what are you doing here? And God knows what Elijah's doing there, right? He's, he's, he's pointing out, Elijah, this is not where you're supposed to be. You have something I've called you to, the work of a prophet. You are to be faithful and obedient, and yet you're hiding here. And in the middle of this, God says, Elijah, I want you to, to wait by the mouth of the cave because I'm about to pass by. And so there's Elijah and he's like, ah, God's going to come. He's going to show up. And Elijah's waiting and there's this wind. It says it just tears the mountain apart. I mean, this ferocious windstorm. And it says, but God was not in the wind. And if I'm Elijah, I'm like, huh, Okay. And then there's an earthquake and I'm like, oh, this, I mean, God's finally showing up with power now and the earthquake just shakes the mountain and Elijah's waiting and, and God was not in the earthquake. And then there's the fire, right? And if, if I'm Elijah, I'm like, okay, surely God is, our God is a consuming fire. That's biblical. This has got to be the moment. And he's waiting and silence. And then it says after that, After the, earth, after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, and that little phrase, when Elijah heard it, that's significant. Because if I'm like Elijah, when I'm hiding in the cave, what I'm praying is, God, would you show up in impressive ways? God, would you let your power be known? God, I, I want to see you in a dramatic way. And so I'm waiting, and it's like, God, pour out your power. And he sees the, the wind and the fire and the earthquake and nothing. And yet Elijah remains attentive for me, in much less ways, when I want God to show up and God doesn't show up in the way I expect, I go, well, God's not here. And how many times do I stop listening because I think, well, God didn't show up in the way that I wanted to. But Elijah remains attentive and there's this still gentle whisper. Elijah, why are you still here? And Elijah goes, well, because I've been super zealous he has this little pity party moment. I've been done everything you've asked. They killed all your prophets. I'm the only one left and they're going to kill me. Again, you can hear his defeat. And yet in this moment, as God speaks to him in a gentle whisper, God speaks truth into Elijah's doubt. And he goes, Elijah, you're wrong. You are not the only one. He goes, in fact, there are 7,000 people who have still not bowed to Israel. And then God tells him this in verse 15. He says, go back the way that you came. He says, Elijah, there is still work to be done. I want you to go and anoint kings and kingdoms. I want you to go and anoint prophets. He goes, Elijah, we're about to shake things up. But God speaks this through the still, small, gentle whisper. Here's my big idea, church. As we talk about moving towards becoming whole, as we talk about living a better way, here's, here's my big idea, that you and I are to cultivate a life of prayer attentive to the voice of God. And for Elijah, there is this moment when God whispers into his life and it becomes a catalytic moment that changes everything. That's what gets Elijah back in the game. And church, what we need to do is we go, how do we move towards wholeness? How do we begin to live a transformative way? We need to be a people who are cultivating a life of attentiveness to the still small whisper of God's voice. Oswald Chambers said it this way. He says, prayer does not fit us for the greater works. Prayer is the greater work. 
I, I thought that was profound. Because how, how many times do we say, well, I, I don't know what else to do, but I, I, I can just pray. And, and we put that little qualifier, just, I can just pray. I don't know what else to do, so I'll just pray. It's never just prayer, right? Prayer is this moment of approaching the throne room of, of God and being attentive to what God wants to say and do and speak in our lives. And church, I think like Elijah, when we encounter the whisper of God's still small voice, that is a life-changing moment that begins to change how we live day to day. It changes the rhythm and routines of our life. How would our world look different if every day we stepped into our to-do list, stepped into our routine as a people who had heard from the voice of God? Psalm 46 is a picture of what it is to be anchored in stillness. And what strikes me is that for Elijah, he had to stay in there and stay attentive even when God wasn't showing up how he wanted him to. And in that moment where the wind and the fire and the earthquake have subsided and there's this eerie calm, you can imagine, right? It's in that stillness that God speaks. Psalm 46 then is a picture of what, what, is, what does this stillness look like? So as we talk about this idea of prayer and how do we cultivate an attentiveness to the voice and presence of God, I think Psalm 46 guides us in this process. Psalm 46 says this, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Though the waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he's brought on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, God says, be still. And know that I'm God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And now what the psalmist describes is, is, is a, a picture of chaos. Right? The people of Israel, they are not a seafaring people. And often in the Psalms, you'll find the images of the seas or the oceans. They're, they're a metaphor for something that is chaotic and unknown. Something that's uncontrollable. Now, the, the mountains, they're, they're like the pillars of the earth. They're the foundations. Mountains are steadfast. Mountains don't move. And yet the psalmist says, imagine you're in this place where the mountains are falling into the heart of the sea, where what is known feels like it's falling apart, right? He's painting this metaphorical picture of when life is chaos, when things are falling apart. Verse six, he says, nations are in uproar. He is describing a world where everything's out of your control. There's political upheaval. Things are in chaos. And in that picture, right, the question is, how do we respond? And, and for me, how I want to respond is I'm like, Lord, bring the fire. Lord, bring the wind. Lord, bring the earth. Would you show up in a dramatic way? Or my other thing is, all right, let's put a plan together. Let's charge in. We got to have this strategy. We got to do these things. And, and that's in my strength what I want to do. And yet the psalmist in verse 10, he says, God tells his people in the middle of that chaotic world, he says, be still. And y'all, part of me goes, this feels like the worst plan ever. We got, we got mountains falling into the sea. We got nations in uproar. And God, you want us to be still? 
And, and that word, that phrase, be still, it literally means to cease from striving. And, and as I was thinking about this week, uh, this, this passage, I realized how much, even, even though I might say I don't like to strive, how much I still like to strive because I like to be in control. Do you like to be in control? Because control feels safe, right? If I'm in charge and I can sort of, but that control is all an illusion. As much as I might think it feels safe, it's not actually safe. And so the psalmist says, in the middle of all of this chaos, he says, I want you to cease from your striving. And in that stillness, that pulling away from the striving and the frenetic pace of all the things, in that stillness, he says, I want you to know that I'm God. In that phrase, to know, it doesn't mean like, you know, facts about God. It's not an academic knowing. He goes, no, be still and experience the reality of God's living presence. Man, that's so different. In the middle of the chaos, stop. In the middle of the chaos, take a breath, pull back, cease from striving, and cultivate an intentional awareness of God's presence. One commentator on Psalm 46 said this. He said, only when we cease our own frantic activity can we begin to experience God's activity for us. Only then, says the psalmist, can we know that he is God. It's in that ceasing of all the frantic activity, the pulling back and the sitting in stillness and in quietness that we experience the reality of God's presence. I think we need, our world needs a people who, like Elijah, have heard the still small whisper of God's voice, have had that life-changing encounter with the real living God who empowers us to go back and to live a faithful way in line with the word and the truth and the teaching of God. And the psalmist says, in the middle of all this chaos, cease from striving. And here's one of the ways I've been aware of my own striving as it relates to prayer. I've realized that a lot of times when I approach God in prayer, most of my prayer consists of my agenda, right? And I bring my agenda before God and I go, God, here's how I would like you to work here. And here's how I want you to do this. And if you could fix this, that would be great. And I bring all of these things before him. And in all my communication is one way. I'm telling God my agenda of how I would like him to work. And yet, church, I, I was struck this week as I read this, cease, you're striving, be still. I realized part of the striving that I need to let go of is in prayer, bring those things before God, but surrender them to him and then sit back and go, now God, what, what would you say into those things? This situation that I'm stressed about, that I wish you would fix, what, what would you say to me about that? And part of my ceasing from striving is to sit in silence and say, Lord, would you speak to me? Part of my ceasing from striving is surrendering my agenda and saying, God, would you bring your agenda? How, how would that change things? What if before that phone call, before that email, before that text, what if before that one-on-one -on -one with our boss or before that conversation with a child or parent, what if we sat back and said, here's the script of how I want to lie into my boss about how they have been a bad leader. Or, or here's the thing that I really want to tell my parents about how they let me down. Or here's the angry text that I, what would happen if we sat back and said, Lord, I feel hurt. I'm frustrated. 
here's what I want to say, but what would you have me do? How, how would that look different? I felt that even just this week, there was uh, something I, you know, I thought, ah, maybe I should have this conversation, not a super hard conversation, but just something I was like, ah, maybe I should push into that and bring this uh, awareness to this person's area of their life. And I was praying about it. And the thing is, it didn't really totally even involve me. And, And I was praying about it. I was like, God, should I have this conversation? And I felt like the thing that God said to me is, Aaron, this isn't about you. It might've bothered you, but I'm doing something in their life and you need to let it be. I said, okay, I'm going to surrender that. What would it look like if we would let go of our agenda, cease from the striving, sit in silence and say, Lord, would you let your still, small, gentle whisper speak truth into my life? And and as you look at Psalm 46, I think what we see is that a life of of prayerful stillness in which we're attentive to the voice of God, it, it begins to change us, right? It's a transformative thing. Even sitting in silence, if I'm not saying anything and I'm just saying, Lord, would you speak? It does something. Psalm 46 suggests to us that prayerful stillness before God reframes our perspective. It reminds us that God is our refuge and strength, right? Did you notice how the psalmist says this? God is our refuge and strength. I can be still because I'm not in control. I don't have to come up with the plan. God already has the plan. He's my refuge and strength, right? And then what I want to do is I want to put the plan together and go, okay, we got to be financially stable. We got to have the job security. We got to have all the things in place. And I want my refuge to be my own competence, And prayer reminds me that my true refuge, my true source of strength is not me. It's not my, let's be honest, my incompetence, more like it. My true refuge and strength is God. And yet so often we know this theologically, but we live as if it's not true. Because if God is my true refuge and strength, wouldn't I go to him before I engage in all the things that life entails? If I need strength and I need a place of safety and I believe that to be true, wouldn't wouldn't that draw me towards the presence of God? But not only does prayer reframe our perspective, reminding us that God is truly our refuge and strength, it helps us remember that God is present and promises help. Right? The psalmist says, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. And so we know theologically, right, that God is ever-present. What prayer does, what what cultivating an awareness of God's uh, voice and presence does is it says, God, I know that you're always present. Help me to be intentionally aware of what you're saying in this time, in this place, in this moment. Prayerful stillness reframes our perspective, helps us remember that God is present, and it also helps us resist giving way to fear. Right, Elijah, he has given way to fear because his circumstances feel so overwhelming. His circumstances, I mean, Ahab and Jezebel, they have the power of the military at their beck and call. They have the ability to to kill Elijah. That's why he's hiding in the cave. And yet Elijah's, his, his moment of going back in faithfulness to serve and to anoint kings and to anoint Elisha, his, his moment that changed everything that encouraged him to go back into faithful service was the still small whisper of God's voice of truth. So I think the question then, right, is how do we actually cultivate this, right? How do we begin to create space of quietness and stillness to to hear God's voice? So 
Three things I want to give us to develop a rhythm of prayerful stillness. Number one, I think we need to create space to withdraw from the frenetic things of life and to wait on the presence of the Lord. And, and I say create space because and, and that, that's, that's a subtle shift from find time, find space. Because if I'm going to find time and space, y'all, that's not going to happen. But if, if I'm intentional about it, I'm going to create the space for it. Right? And, and I, I know I've shared this before, but I think it, it fits so well here again that I, I, I was trying to be intentional about something. And, and a friend of mine said, you got to stop saying uh, that you're going to try to find time and start just owning the fact that it's not important to you. And I think sometimes with people, we go, I'm, I'm going to find time. And we never find time. And I think we have to recognize that for so many of us, we just haven't made prayer a priority. And so in creating space for the stillness of God's voice and God's presence, part of what I'm saying is let's make this a priority. And, and those scriptures in Mark 135, right? Jesus is in, in, uh, right in the throes of ministry. And in Mark 135, Jesus withdraws to a lonely place to pray. He gets up very early in the morning while it's still dark outside and he goes away and prays. In Luke chapter 6, verse 12, let me read this one to you. Luke 6, verse 12. It says, one of those days, Jesus went up on a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. Luke 5, verse 15, it says, the news about Jesus spread all the more. So the crowds of people came to hear him and be healed. Verse 16, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places. Not just occasionally, Jesus often withdrew. And I look at this and I go, if Jesus needed the rhythm and pattern of withdrawing to be in places of silence and solitude to wait on the presence of the Lord, how much more do I need that? As we create space, part of this rhythm looks like then casting your cares on him. And part of this language in the Psalms is as we cast our cares on the Lord, part of this is quieting my own soul. Psalm 132 or 131 verse 2 says it this way. Psalm 131 verse 2 says, I have calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. That's verse three. And it's this moment of like being in God's presence, put your hope in him. And there's this quietness of the soul. And part of that happens as, as we bring our worries before him. Psalm 62, eight says it this way. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him for God is our refuge. And, and notice the psalmist there acknowledges God is our refuge. And he says, because God is your refuge, pour out your heart to him. The refuge can handle the weight of all the things that you feel, the stress, the burdens, the anxieties. God can handle those things. And so it's creating space to get alone and to be quiet before God. And then to say, Lord, here's all the things that are on my heart. Will you take them? I love 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your anxieties in the Lord because he cares for you. How, how cool is that, that? That Jesus loves you and cares for you. And so Peter says to the church in 1 Peter, he says, throw your anxieties on him. And how many times am I carrying something thinking I need to fix it or I need to make it happen? And Jesus says, oh, can I carry that? Where you feel powerless, can I be your refuge? And prayer, as we create space and, and quiet our heart and let God carry those things, I think we find a peace, as Philippians says, that passes our ability even to comprehend the kind of peace that doesn't make sense in a world that's broken. 
And yet God in his grace provides it. So we create space. We cast our cares on him. And then church, I think we need to cultivate an intentional awareness of God's presence. And part of this, it begins with listening, right? Psalm 62.1 says it this way. Truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. And in letting my soul be at rest, I go, okay, Lord, I've given you my anxieties. Now, what would you say to me? What would you speak into my life? If you look at 1 Samuel uh, 3.10, I have it listed there. Uh, 1 Samuel is this moment where we talked about Hannah's story last week. Hannah's son is Samuel, and she vows that Samuel will serve in the temple. And and there's this moment where, where Samuel, he's going to bed at night, and he hears this voice calling out to him. And so Samuel goes to Eli, who's the priest, and he goes, yeah, Eli, uh, you called for me. Eli goes, I didn't, I didn't call for you. You can go back to bed. Samuel goes back to bed, and he, he hears the voice again calling. Samuel gets up, he goes to Eli, and he goes, yeah, uh, Eli, what do you want? He goes, I didn't call you. And it's this moment where God is calling out to Samuel. And Eli has this moment of wisdom, and he says, Samuel, next time God calls out to you, just say this, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And I love the simplicity of that openness to in, in a place of quietness and stillness to come before God and say, Lord, would you speak because your servant is listening? And what I love about that is one, it acknowledges that I'm the servant, not the master. And what I want to do is I want to bring my agenda before God and say, if you'd fix things the way that I want it, that'd be great. And what God says is, how about you pour out your heart to me, as the Psalm says, how about you cast your anxieties on me and we have a conversation about what needs to look different? Ooh, I like my way better. <laughs> So here's what this looks like for me. Before 8.30 in the morning, I've got two drop-offs for kids at two different locations, right? And so like by 8.45 in the morning, I've already driven like halfway around Brookings. And already like before the days even began, I feel like that stress and it's like trying to get kids to different places and we get to one school and it's like, ah, you forgot your boots or your gym shoes. Now we got to go. And it's like "Ah," all the things. And some days, even before I get ready to start the day, it's like, I'm already stressed. You feel that? You have that experience? And so what what this looks like for me, and and you have to understand who are you and what does this rhythm of creating space and casting your cares and cultivating awareness, what does it look like for you? For me, often at that point, I'm like too jittery to sit still. And so there's a a place in town that I just like to walk a loop. And what I find myself doing as I walk a loop, depending on how anxious I am, sometimes I walk two loops, takes me about 10 to 12 minutes. And when I walk the one way, I'm just telling God all the things that I'm anxious about, all the things that I'm frustrated about. And I just, I do what the Psalm says and I pour out my heart to him. God, I've got to preach this week. That feels stressful. I don't know what to say. And God, I've got this thing and that financial pressure in this. And, and I just pour it out to him. And it's not always like reverent religious language. Sometimes it's like, God, I'm frustrated. Like, why won't you work in this thing? And I'm anxious about this. And I don't see your hand here. And God, you know, I, I try to be honest with him. And after I do that for a lap or two, my next lap or two, depending on the day, is... Okay, Lord, would you speak? Your servant is listening. And, and I say that honestly more as a prayer, like God, help me to listen. <laughs> help me to have the disposition of, of Samuel who's ready to receive. And I just walk in silence. Some days I feel like, man, God speaks to me in that moment. Other days it just feels like silence. And I just trust that even if I didn't have some deep revelation, that the whisper of God's presence was enough. 
And I can tell you in ways that I'm not, I don't even know how to put words to, like it changes my disposition. It changes my approach to the rest of the day. And so what would it look like, church, instead of striving and pushing and harder and, and trying to do all the things in our control, what if we stepped back, created space and said, Lord, we just want to hear from you. Now, here's the challenge, right? Is as I think about quietness and stillness and solitude, part of me goes, but this feels super passive. I want to do something. And yet God is calling me to cease from striving, right? And it's not that we're passive forever. I think what, what we see in scriptures is we are people who withdraw into silence and solitude so that when we give ourselves to ministry action outside of that, we rise from a place of connectedness with the Father and we go forth, not in our own agenda, but in the power and presence of the Spirit, one of my prayers has been Galatians 5.25. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Y'all want to pray a prayer that messes up your day? Pray that in the morning. Lord, not my agenda. Help me to walk in rhythm with the Spirit. And then the Spirit will say, I want to have a conversation with this person. Like, I don't want to have a conversation with that person. I don't know that person. You should have a conversation. I don't want to. Right? And yet in that moment, as we cultivate an attentiveness to the voice and presence of God, he realigns our agenda around the things that God wants to do. And so where Elijah's in a cave ready to get up, give up, God says, go back and anoint kings and prophets. There's more work to be done. Where I want to give up and go, it's not worth it. God says in his gentle whisper, go back. I have more for you to do. Your family, your community, your workplace needs the truth of the gospel and you are there for a purpose. And so church, may we be a people who rise out of stillness and connectedness with the voice, power, and presence of God for redemptive purposes in the places that God has placed us. And here's the thing. I can wait on the Lord because I can trust God's timing. His timing is never my timing. Have you noticed that in your own life? I'm like, God, if you could fix it yesterday, that'd be great. And he's like, well, I got something. Let's wait. I can be silent because I trust that God is speaking. I can be still in his presence because I trust that God is active. And, and I think church, what so much of this comes down to is that there is a humility in this prayerful process that trusts that God is in control and I am not. And so where the psalmist says, cease from striving and be still, I think it's a call to radically reorient my perspective and say, Lord, I'm gonna wait on you, wait on your guidance, and I will rise to action out of what you have called me to, not my own agenda. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for the, the truth of your word. And I thank you for the examples of the psalmist who, in the middle of this chaotic moment, he calls us to stillness. God, I thank you for the example of someone like Samuel who, when he hears you calling under uh, Eli's tutelage, can say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. I pray, Father, that we would be a people who create space to withdraw from the frenetic pace of life and to wait on you, to connect with you. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful, all the burdens and the things that we carry. May we cast those on you so that we can experience your peace. And Lord, as we cast those things on you and as we quiet our souls, Lord, may, may we wait in quiet anticipation of the still, small whisper of your voice. And Lord, when you don't show up in the wind and the fire in the dramatic ways that we want, 
Lord, help us to recognize the places where we want your power, not your presence. May we confess that and say, Lord, we want your presence. Whether it's dramatic or whether it's a simple whisper, Lord, we want to hear from you. It is your word that guides your people in truth. So Father, let us not give way to the tyrannies of the urgent day in and day out. But may we make hearing your voice a priority in all that we do, Lord. Would you grace us to do so? In Jesus' name, amen.